Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Katriona Gold, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Michael Berube, who is the author, along with Jennifer Ruth, of It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom. Michael Berube is the Edwin Earl Sparks Professor of Literature in the Department of English at Pennsylvania State University. His co-author, Jennifer Ruth, is a professor in the School of Film at Portland State University. This new book was released with Johns Hopkins University Press in April 2022, and it's a vital intervention in very much ongoing debates about academic freedom, free speech, and so-called cancel culture. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Right. Well, I'd like to start uh, by just asking you a little bit about yourself. So, you know, what's your academic trajectory been thus far? Uh, how did it, how did it get us to this point? <laughs> um, the trajectory has basically been like that. Uh, I taught for I, I did my undergraduate work at Columbia in New York. Um, my graduate work at the University of Virginia. Got my first job at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1989. Worked there for 12 years, and came to Penn State in 2001 along with my wife Janet Lyon. We were a, a, a couple higher, which is pretty rare. So we thought we'd, we'd take the chance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, this is, I think. Um, I think my, my 12th book. Um, Jennifer has been um, at Portland State, I think, since 1999. She got her PhD from Brown. I apparently met her briefly uh, in email in 2003 or 2004, but that's not where our, our uh, friendship and collaboration started. Uh, she wrote to me in 2013 with one of the wonkiest questions I've ever heard. Um, it had to do with a report put out by the American Association of University Professors, uh, arguing that uh, faculty off the tenure track should be involved in university governance. Well, yes, they should be, but the report it did not acknowledge how uh, much more precarious this might make their jobs, how much more vulnerable they might be uh, if they pissed somebody off or pissed off an administrator working on such and such a committee. So we started from there. Uh, this is a, a strange basis for a friendship, uh, but we're both policy wonks. We're uh, both active in the American, I'll just say AAUP, American Association of University Professors. And eventually that became a book we published in 2015 with uh, the most boring title ever, uh, The Humanities, Higher Education and Academic Freedom, Three Necessary Arguments. And part of the, the, the purpose of that book was to argue um, if you really do want 
faculty off the tenure track to have more job security and to participate in the life of the university, you should convert them to the tenure track. And we provided not only an argument why, but an actual um, uh, Jennifer had come up with a proposal at Portland State, uh, and her administration actually was friendly to it. They didn't implement it, interestingly, because the union, she's at, at a unionized campus, um, the union, the non-tenure track faculty were more interested in having long-term contracts than in having a tenure up or out decision, which they thought would actually be um, scarier and more um, uh, uh, corrosive of, of job security. So. Uh, we let things uh, sit there for a while. We, you know, we did some publicity for that book. We stayed in touch, and then um, one of her, she had two colleagues at Portland State. One is Bruce Gilley, a professor of politics. The other is a former colleague um, named Peter Bogosian, and they were both basically, you know, uh, itching to be canceled. Uh, Bogosian, in fact, resigned. Uh, he was one of those resignations that said, I can't take the woke university anymore. Um, he's a minor call celeb uh, on the, uh, the uh, anti-woke right. Um, Gilly is still there, and Gilly was notorious for an article called The Case for Colonialism, which was then retracted. And then you, you first hear that. When I first saw that article, I thought it was the Monty Python joke. Right from Life of Brian, you know what have the Romans ever done for us? Uh, but he was—it was real. It was—it was not just trolling. Um, and it raises the question as to whether you, know, you, you publish a thing that not only contravenes the historical record, but you know decades of scholarship. What you know is that in fact covered by academic freedom? It's a tough call. So we don't actually—we uh, don't actually make a decision about Bruce Gilley. Um, but Jennifer was living this. She was the vice president for academic freedom and grievances at Portland State when this case dropped in her lap. So this is, and that's, this was the um, summer of 2020. So as we explained in the introduction, there was that, there was the question that it opened on to, like what happens if you have white supremacist scholarship? And then George Floyd was murdered. And the racial reckoning uh, that the, the United States seems to have to have every seven years and then white people forget about it anyway uh, but this one you know really had some resonance partly because of the pandemic and partly because of the wave of police killings so um and some universities as we note in the intro like princeton took woodrow wilson's name off the school of international affairs and so we asked well that's all well and good but what about a university that continues to employ things that woodrow wilson believed you know about eugenics and about racial hierarchies well, you could say, and some of our critics have already said, there aren't very many of those people. That's true. You don't find straight up white nationalists, you know, with iron crosses and swastikas on their foreheads teaching in American universities. But we've learned actually from a, a couple of recent sh mass shooting events that, um, in fact, white supremacist scholarship does make its way out there and does inspire murderous rage. Um, so it's not a question of numbers. And furthermore, it's not just a question of white supremacists. We started asking the question, what makes a professor unfit to teach? We open the door with white supremacists, but we don't close it there. And so uh, it really turned into a, a wide ranging discussion of the difference between academic freedom and free speech. In the United States, a lot of that nonsense is covered by free speech as, as well it should be, but it's not intellectually legitimate. And that's a different thing. And that's where we started our work. So yeah, it's been, uh, I guess now, um, 
almost a decade we've been working together on and off, but uh, this one uh, sort of took us by surprise. It was very much a work in progress. We we wrote it throughout 2020 and then revised it for the first half of 2021 as things were unfolding. Right. Okay. And I'm, I mean, I'm so glad you did because, yeah, there was so much in here that I had no idea about. I mean, just in terms of the the... the the dynamics at play and also, I mean, the sheer number um, and, and detailed consideration of case studies or I guess, you know, controversial figures, whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, I, uh, scholars, um, but I, 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 I wonder if, uh, I wonder if we could start um, really getting into it um, by, I mean, you've laid out quite well, I think, what the problem you're trying to address here, but maybe I could ask you to say, okay, what is this differentiation between academic freedom and free speech? You know, why why does academic freedom need to be distinct from free speech? Um, yeah, what's what's that about? <laughs> well, I'll also be happy to discuss some of the cases you mentioned or you allude to about you know the things that really didn't make. Um international headlines, because in the, in the first chapter, we try to set up, you know, what, what counts as a, as a racist utterance? We don't want to set the bar so low that a, an offhand remark um, gets someone into, not only into trouble, but becomes a firing offense. And we mention a number of cases where the most notorious is the, uh, the business professor who um, was using, um, he was using the Chinese word for um, which sounds like the N-bomb in English, and some black students objected, and he was immediately, you know, taken out of his course. And that's not, that's, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. That is not a, a, a piece of white supremacist scholarship or speech. So, and one of the problems we find with that, and we can get back to this later, is that those things are handled by administration. They are not determined by faculty. They are not, um, there's no faculty review of what's legit and what's not. So let's get to what's legit and what's not. That's the real question. So I think of it this way. Free speech, think of free speech as this ocean of whatever. Um, whatever liquid you, you, you know, it's like water, doesn't matter. Um, almost anything goes. Uh, no shouting fire in a crowded theater. No threats of violence or imminent attack, you know. But otherwise, if I want to go out, I'm going to pick somebody. Um, I'm going to pick somebody British. David Ickes. Ick, is it Ickes, right? I think it's David, Ike. I, David it? Ike. Yeah. David, is it Ike? Okay. I'm not an expert. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so I was today years old when I finally learned how to pronounce his name after reading it for many years. Anyway, you know what we're, we're talking about—the belief that our uh, the world is ruled by uh, subterranean lizard people uh, from another planet. Uh, this has actually weird links to anti-Semitic anti beliefs that go back centuries. Now, if I want to go out and warn my neighbors about the lizard people, I have every right to do that under the United States Constitution. The government cannot exercise prior restraint of my speech. If I start doing that in the classroom, I'm a wackadoodle. And I really should not, I'm not fit to teach whatever I'm teaching. I mean, it's so obviously disqualifying. Now, in the course of the book, we come up with a couple of people, um, no one really um, taking on the question of the lizard people, but we have a number of people, for example, a professor who believed that the massacre of children at the Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School was a false flag operation. We have um, a young black professor at Oberlin who basically subscribed to every anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on, on the market, right down to, you know, Charlie Hebdo was a false flag. Uh, Mossad was responsible for 9-11. And here's the problem. Again, free speech protects those utterances. 
academic freedom, though, go back to that ocean. Think of academic freedom as this you know, fragile little boat. It needs, it needs free speech as a basis, right? Without an open society, without um, freedom from government coercion, the game is over. There's no, there's no intellectual freedom to speak of. So you need that as a, as a, as a basis. But, intellect, but academic freedom builds on that, and it relies on an idea, on an idea of scholarly expertise. So, excuse <clears throat> me. Uh, one of the paradoxes of that is, if I go on Twitter at the end of this interview and start mouthing off about stuffing, stuff I know nothing about, that's fine. People do that all the time. Seems what Twitter is for. But if I start going on Twitter and start writing about things in my area of expertise, let's say, for example, one of the things I do is disability studies. And I start writing on Twitter that you know maybe involuntary sterilization and eugenics were good ideas after all. At now I'm calling into question my intellectual legitimacy. So the paradox here is the more, <clears throat> in the relation between academic freedom and free speech, is that <clears throat> the closer your, your speech gets to your area of expertise, the less freedom you have. And that's right and just. And we mentioned in the book, it's a classic example. An electrical engineer who's a Holocaust denier is just a crank. That's a real person, Arthur Butts at Northwestern University. But a historian who's a Holocaust denier is prima facie, unfit to teach. So um, here's where things get even worse. In the United States, and this is not true in, in most European countries, we decided that academic freedom would include extramural speech. Um, academic freedom in research and teaching, that's not a hard call. That is strictly academic. Right? So you should be free to research things and publish the results. You should be free to teach your material in the classroom. Do not stray too much from that material. Do not bring in irrelevant material. But you can teach controversial things as long as they're you know, within the parameters of the course and within the parameters of your expertise. But then there's Twitter, or then there's the soapbox, or then there's any kind of extramural speech has a very complex relation to academic freedom. And, and as you've seen from the book, many of the cases we deal with, in fact, almost all the cases over the last, like, say, 20 years, involve professors in social media. Um, very rarely is the case, as with a, a person like Bruce Gilley, that someone is actually publishing uh, arguably white supremacist scholarship. Most of the time, it's... Um, or, or, or occasionally you find a person who's a so-called race realist uh, teaching about racial hierarchies in the classroom. We have an example of that as well from a person who's actually, whose discipline was economics. God knows why he was going off about, about race realism. So it, it's, really, um, it's really a tangled question. We spend um, an entire chapter, chapter two, trying to disentangle it because the history over the last hundred years and more years since the founding of the AEP in 1915 shows a real evolution, real shift in um, in thinking about how academic freedom should or should not extend to extramural speech. Right. So that's one of the central the central questions, and I think you do a really great job of of yeah diving into that and those complications. Um, yeah, and again, with a lot of relevant examples, which, you know, I mean, as much as anything else, this book is, is great as a sort of catalogue. And I know non-exhaustive because, uh, as you mentioned before the interview, new cases keep coming up all the time, uh, unfortunately. Um, but a, a kind of a good starting point in terms of cataloguing uh, some of the more recent controversies of this kind. Um, so 
I wonder if uh, we could turn to something you've already sort of mentioned um, earlier on uh, in our conversation in terms of your previous work with Jennifer, um, which is this question of, of precarity. Um, so, right, so the increasing amount of, of scholars who are not tenure track, uh, have no hope of being tenure track, um, or, if, you know, job security in most other forms, right? And so how do we even start to talk about academic freedom um, or what does it mean to talk about academic freedom when there's such a as it's a minority of people who have any kind of employment protections really at all um, yeah uh, it's very difficult um, and that's where Jennifer and I started with our last book in fact we um, toward the end of the book quoted um, a, a sort of prominent adjunct professor in the US Josh Bolt who wrote a, cheek, a, a column t- cheekily titled, I got 99 problems, but tenure ain't one. And, and what he meant was, there's no chance my universe, anyone's going to convert me to a tenure track. And so what I'm most concerned about is job security off the tenure track. And unless you have a really ironclad contract, as Jennifer's colleagues do at, at, at Portland State, because they're a, a unionized faculty, um, you can be let go at any time for any reason. Uh, at Penn State, I um, had every assurance from our general counsel and our provost. Back, I, by the way, I, I served uh, for eight years in the faculty senate here. I um, also uh, was elected chair. Um, I served as, in the leadership from 2017 to 2020, and as chair in 2018-19. So these were a lot. These involved a lot of face-to-face conversations with with upper administration. And one of these questions, the question came up. What protections do we have here for our faculty off the tenure track? Nationwide, that number, that percentage is around 70. Here at Penn State, it's low 50s, but they're still a majority. And I was assured, no, they have the same due process protections as the tenured faculty. Well, not on paper, they don't. What tenure is, and I'm not sure how many people generally know this, it's not a lifetime guarantee of employment. It is legally continued employment with termination for cause. And in fact, we do have cases where people are brought up for cause. Uh, moral turpitude, gross mis- uh, grave misconduct, failure to perform, excessive absenteeism. Those are the criteria. It, this can happen, but the burden of proof is on the university. With a non-tenure track faculty member, there's no burden of proof. And they can just be let go. No reason actually has to be given. And what that means, practically, I think this is embedded in your question, is that really they do not have the academic freedom that faculty should have. If they cause trouble, if a student complains, if a parent complains, if a donor complains, um, they're expendable. And occasionally, uh, as with the, I think I believe, um, uh, Laura Burnett at Collin College in Texas, who was uh, fired for, for tweeting something about then-Vice President Mike Pence's demon mouth. I mean, which doesn't even move the needle on Twitter. You know, that's not, it's hardly uh, incendiary speech. But she became, uh, her, her case was taken up. But it's very rare that a non-tenure track faculty member who's fired uh, for political or for financial reasons, has any recourse at all. So uh, I'm skipping ahead a bit because um, eventually I, I think we will want to talk about what Jennifer and I propose in terms of these, what we say, would be academic freedom committees. But the two virtues of what we propose, um, 
of these, you know, faculty elected and faculty driven academic freedom committees is one, they are not led by administration. So administrators who are very susceptible to political pressure and donors and trustees and parents and alumni, um, they, they wouldn't be making these calls. The other thing though, is that these committees would adjudicate cases regardless of tenure status. This would actually give the non-tenure track faculty members more protection if they feel their academic freedom had been violated. Right. So to, to go over that again, so this question of, okay, um, using committees to to kind of, yeah, adjudicate uh, these, these matters of academic freedom rather than, so that would be as an alternative to you're proposing that as an alternative to just sort of letting administrators decide or who, you know, what, I mean, what is the status quo in terms of, does it vary a lot by institution or in terms of who is deciding, how it's decided? Yeah. The status quo is a total mess. And, you know, Jennifer, you may recall the the passage in the book where we said, you know, we expect that these committees will be uh, derided as star chambers by libertarians and conservatives. And, you know, the mostly libertarian foundation for the individual rights in education. Um, we, we did a podcast interview with uh, uh, Nico Perino of FIRE, and he reported with some surprise that actually the idea of academic freedom committees went over reasonably well because what we have now is worse. And that uh, informs some of the examples in, in, in chapter one where suddenly a dean, you know, flinches and pulls a person out of the classroom, or a diversity, equity, inclusion officer uh, decides, I'm going to make this call. And and this happened at at Rutgers to James Livingston, and all of a sudden he's suspended. And, or God help us, human resources makes the call. And that human resources has no relation to any academic anything. So what we have now is this hodgepodge of um, individual offices or individual people who can make these calls sometimes... um, in, in knee-jerk fashion in order to head off, you know, publicity or to, to you know, um, to, to try to uh, uh, distract the hounds, uh, the, the attack dogs, or what have you. And you, no one has time to sit down and, like, look over the facts of the case and see, wait, is this really a disciplinary offense? Is this really a firing offense? Um, and we're hoping that this, um, basically, we think it's the, the, the worst proposal except for all the others. Because what we have now is, like I say, it's, it's, it's chaos. And it's arbitrary. And we, we are enough, um, we are liberal proceduralist wonks enough to believe that it's, whenever you have an executive decision to be made, it's better to be made by a group of people than by a single executive. It doesn't ensure that injustice will not be done, but it does ensure that one person can make an arbitrary call. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right, that makes sense. And I mean, the whole idea of faculty governance, right? I mean, it it would be odd, it's odd for it to sort of, I mean, there's obviously other points at which faculty governance ends, but this is a strange place for it to end, given that this is this is determining the sort of, yeah, the I actual, mean, it's, The it's, actual content of what we do. I mean, uh, yeah. so one of, the example, one of the examples that came up very late, um, we actually worked it into our, we, we published an essay. I just happened to have the issue in the New Republic a couple of months ago. Um, yeah. Um, and so they published about a 6,000 word excerpt from the book. And one of our examples there was the uh, indelibly leftist communications professor, Mark Crispin Miller, who is now this close to teaching people about the lizard people. I mean, he is really signed on for everything from 9-11 to Sandy Hook trutherism and COVID, God help us. um, There isn't a conspiracy about COVID that he hasn't consumed um, (laughs) without digesting. And some of the one of the reasons this is uh, so damaging is that this is a communications professor. You expect that a person with a scholarly expertise in media and communications would be able to know and to convey to other people the difference between a reliable and an unreliable source. Miller's gone around that bent, and we mention this not just to show that we're not. This is not a partisan witch hunt just for a small group of white supremacist faculty, although. Um, I wouldn't consider that a witch hunt. I would consider that a vetting of white supremacist faculty. But this touches on the question much more broadly of uh, what constitutes, uh, as I said before, what constitutes fitness. Well, here's what happened to Mark Crispin Miller. He was um, charged by 25 of his colleagues with being transphobic and bullying. And his case went to the Title IX office at New York University where he teaches. And Jennifer and I consider this a category error. He was investigated for transphobia and bullying because they have an office for that. He was not investigated for espousing batshit conspiracy theories because they don't have an office for that. And of course, it wouldn't be called the Office of Batshit Conspiracy Theories. It would be called an Academic Freedom Committee. Is this kind of work really covered by academic freedom. By all means, he can go out to Washington Square Park across the street from his classroom and spout whatever he wants about COVID. God knows everyone else is doing it too. We have a nation now that is taking its medical advice from Joe Rogan. So, you know, par for the course with that. But in the classroom, that's another matter. And, excuse me, um, that's where I think... um, it, it, it makes, I think it makes the case eloquently that the way universities are handling this kind of thing is simply mistaken. It's, I mean, not to, not to say that transphobia and bullying are okay. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that alone, I mean, uh, that's a sort of behavior, that is a sort of human resource issue. But what seemed to us much more important is whether the work he's doing has any intellectual legitimacy whatsoever. Now, again, we don't make that call. I have not 
seen his his dossiers, his wealth of materials. I've read his blog. It's it's a rabbit hole. But um, there's where we thought the, the real review should have taken place. Right, right. I've, yeah, okay. And so that, that's really interesting. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, all, I mean, all of these examples are, yeah, very different. Um, and, yeah, his story is, it seems, particularly sad given, um, yeah, his previous career um right no i mean yeah. that's one of the reasons he's a distinguished by any by any measure a distinguished media theorist uh very influential and the response we've gotten overwhelmingly is oh my god i hadn't i did not know that this is where he had gone um so yeah uh, uh it, it's it, we had to catch our breath <laughs> and uh and again after a certain point i had to stop reading the blog because my it, it was painful but again, um, as, as um, I'm sure you know, we're, we're, I think the national contexts aren't all that different. Um, in the response to COVID um, on the conspiracy-minded among us uh, has been terrifying, just terrifying. And in this country, it's compounded by you know QAnon and uh, uh, the whole Trump belief that you know he didn't lose the election. Um, it's really a, a stinking sewer of misinformation and that as we mentioned in one chapter that opens up to very large questions as to whether you know, the liberal belief in free speech has reached its sell-by date um we 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 go up to that water we do another water analogy dip a small toe in and say you know what our book's not about this our book is about academic freedom but you know this is actually a, a totally live question. Um, we got a review from a, a very fair um, a negative review from uh, a politics professor Jonathan Marks in The Bulwark. It's a right leaning publication, so we didn't expect uh, to be greeted with laurels. But one of the things he said was that this is nothing new, this has been a problem since the invention of the printing press. And honestly, I, I think you can say that only if you haven't paid attention for the last 20 years. If you haven't seen what's happened with Facebook, if you haven't seen what's happened with social media, you know, Benjamin Franklin uh, publishing anonymous pamphlets and then promoting them in the public square that afternoon, Daniel Defoe publishing pamphlets, and that's not the same thing as QAnon. We're in a qualitatively different universe where uh, the, 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 the phenomenon of uh, 2 billion Facebook users can actually uh, spark a genocide. This is, this is quite different um, from anything we've seen before. And that, what's, I think, what raises the question of what, ha, what is the danger and what, is the, what are the stakes of professorial misinformation? I think they've been significantly raised by the general level of misinformation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can't can't deny that the scene today is is definitely very different than it was even a couple of decades ago. It's not a question of sure. degree. It's a, it's, a, it's a difference of kind. I really th I really think so. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh, yeah, something a lot of us have had cause to reflect on with regard to COVID conspiracy theories and what have you. But yeah, also. Yeah, I mean it's very present. It's very present in your book, um, though your book is of course not about about Facebook or Twitter per se. But yeah, these these um, these these questions of how social media is, it's yeah, how, and how academic engagement with it um, are playing out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much we could talk about uh, on those fronts. I, I wonder if we should uh, if we should move now though. Uh, I I'd like to know uh, what's 
what's next for you? Are you are you going to continue to write uh, maybe with Jennifer on that? Well, are, are you done? Are you done with uh, academic freedom altogether? Yeah. Well, no, I think again, you know, um, we we're not worried that we're going to run out of material. You know, um, I, I I think what we're trying to do is come up, you know, for example, in the, in the, in the first chapter, you know, what counts as a, as a racist utterance and what and a much broader question of how to interpret the context of an utterance, right? And um, of course, everyone who um, gets blowback for something, their first line of defense is, well, that was taken out of context. But, you know, we happen to be uh, literature professors uh, and we happen to have just gone through about five, six decades of really rigorous sometimes continental-infused theory about what constitutes intention and context. So uh, we thought we could bring that expertise to bear. Um, and that will always, I think that will always be the case. I mean, I hope uh, the phrase I coined, well, officially Jennifer and I wrote everything together. We say, this is Lennon McCartney, not that that's self-aggrandizing, um, but the, the, the phrase that I, I came up with was that Twitter was a decontextualization apparatus. It's so hard to reconstruct what's up because everything responds to everything else. <clears throat> the, the way you can quote tweet, or retweet, or uh, of course also uh, subtweet. It's it, it's a real challenge to figure out um, what constitutes a relevant context. And in fact, the very term cancel culture comes from Twitter from a tweet that did not actually suggest that Stephen Colbert should be canceled. But that was the, that was the hashtag cancel Colbert. So. Um, if we wanted to continue, I, I think now that the book is out, we will be, uh, I hope, talking about it for quite some time. In the meantime, though, I'll just, you asked me what I'm doing next. Um, very, very luckily, I uh, was on leave for 2020, 2021. I had a sabbatical coming, but then I got elected to the faculty senate. And so I postponed everything three years. And when the, when the pandemic hit, I asked my department head, um, is it even possible for the university to honor this leave or should I postpone it again? I don't know what to do. And he said, we're, we're going to try to be as, as much business as usual as possible. So when I finished, Jennifer and I finished the first um, um, sendable draft of this book in January 2021. We, we waited a long time for readers' reports because I don't know if you're experiencing this in the UK as well, but everything has slowed down. People are so overwhelmed uh, that for some reason they don't want to do a lot of unremunerated or underremunerated labor. And so every editor I've talked to says things are taking forever. It's hard to find readers. So we waited about six months. Um, so in the meantime, I wrote a manuscript about the end of civilization because I thought that would be a nice cheery thing. Um, I teach science fiction. It's one of my other, um, one of the other hats I wear. And I was really struck by Chishin Liu's uh, The Three Body Problem. Um, it, it, how many people, he, he writes at one point very deadpan. It was surprising to see how many people had given up on humanity. Um, and so it's a book partly about defecting. Um, and the perils of doing so, um, ranging from radical environmentalists who just want to exterminate us all to starry-eyed idealists who think that any other alien civilization would be a better uh, a better gig. And I worked backwards from there over a number of um, classic science fiction texts, uh, some of which actually are ostensibly um, uh, narratives about the persistence and, and the, the, the ineffability of the human condition and things that only humans can break. 
So, for um, for example, do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, Philip K. Dick. I, I think I'm one of the, the few people who thinks we should just hand things over to the androids and call it game over. Um, so anyway, that's what the book is about. It's about that moment of uh, these these various texts that imagine our ends. And sometimes, you know, you go back a few decades and it's almost always nuclear apocalypse. Only recently and very timely, have people imagine more viral apocalypses. Um, I think the, the, the possibility of viral apocalypse is... Um, it's more metaphorical. You can't even a, a virus as deadly as this one. Um, I, I, I should quote the person from the uh, Society for Voluntary Human Extinction, who says even a virus that wipes out ninety nine point nine nine percent of us would still leave eight hundred thousand. And who wants that? Um, so, so um, but but I think the power of those ideas is that you know. Um, nuclear exchange involves superpowers, involves um, a, a enormous military apparatus, involves fail-safe or Doctor Strange love or what have you. Um, viral apocalypse can start from anyone uploading a cat video, you know? So it could go viral, right? And that's exactly what's happening with QAnon. QAnon seems to be two guys. And look what they've, look what they've spawned. And so part of this is metaphor and part of this is um, what kinds of um, um, life after the human can we imagine? So that's what I did for most of last year. It's uh, it's under review. I don't know whether we'll ever see the light of day, but I just decided to go in another direction completely and spend the pandemic digging into what comes next. And nothing to do with academic freedom, um, but I'm sure I will return to academic freedom. I'm sure I'll be doing that for the rest of my life. All right, uh, but that's that's uh, that's super interesting. Something completely different. Um, and yeah, a great. I think that's a great place for us to end this interview. And uh, and yeah, with the yeah, end with, of with the, the world. End, with the end of the world. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, no, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, who hasn't who hasn't been thinking about that? Um, but you know, we haven't all been writing about writing a book about it. That's uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, right? I mean, everyone knows, and this is the the really chilling thing, especially if you have grandchildren running around the house, as I do. Everyone knows that COVID was a warm up for climate change. It's a collective action problem. And by the way, we failed. <laughs> yes, many of us are still around. But if this is the way we, we respond to a collective action problem that affects an entire population, mm, it, it, it is not looking good. So um, I can say that I got I don't, I'm thinking I'm looking at my Fitbit here. I only got 20 years left, Max. Um, the grandchildren will probably be around in the year 2100. So I wrote it partly with them in mind. Right. Yeah. On that cheery okay, note. Rough. Yeah, rough, rough for them. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, maybe, should, uh... maybe they'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. That's all we can hope for, right? I mean, yeah, I will also work ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> well, they'll invent a carbon absorption thing. It'll be fine. <laughs> right. Well, um, it's been great talking with you today, Michael. Um, so Likewise, we will yeah. we will wrap it up there uh, with the yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing, nothing else I could end on that would be better. Um, so my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Michael Beribe about his new book, co-authored with Jennifer Ruth. And the book is called It's Not Free Speech, Race, Democracy, and the Future of Academic Freedom. Um, and it was published with Johns Hopkins University Press in April 2022. It's very readable as well as empirically rich, and I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the press, or from any other ethical retailer. So thank you. <laughs> if, 
we have to say it. Thank you everyone yes. for tuning in thank today. <laughs> and thank you for joining me today, Michael. My pleasure, thank you.